the type of things that we looked at instead are politically driven. And all of these were intertwined again with political election data. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 91 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Emilio Ferrara from the University of Southern California about his research into the prevalence of bots and the injection of conspiracy theories regarding the 2020 U.S. presidential election across more than 240 million tweets. Here's Emilio Ferrara. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Emilio Ferrara. I am a associate professor of communication and computer science, equally, equally split between uh, the School of Communication, the Annenberg School, and the Viterbi School of Engineering. I am, however, a computer scientist by training, born and raised. Uh, I think I wanted to be a computer scientist as a little kid. So I was very lucky as a kid to have uh, early exposure to technology, but I was lucky to receive a gift from uh, much richer uncle that I got that was, uh, you know, these early computing systems and that I got hooked and I never stopped learning since then. Uh, So I grew up in Sicily. I studied uh, in the university of my hometown. Uh, There was a nice group of computer scientists at the University of Messina where I, I studied computer science. I got sort of engaged with the research community in my alma mater early on. Ever since then, I had the fortune to be able to get out of my small bubble. So I ended up spending one semester at the Vienna Technical University in Austria. That's where I learned my core data mining uh, and machine learning skills, working in in a group with several outstanding researchers in web data mining. And after that, I spent nearly one year in London at Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, where I worked with uh, uh, machine learning researchers that were uh, experts in network science. So I finalized my sort of research and dissertation on mining uh, and analyzing massive scale online social networks. And I worked on uh, on studying social networks for many years. And that was the natural sort of evolution, the natural next step and the most logical step in my research trajectory. While Emilio started out interested in the social relationships of players within online games, his attention shifted more than a decade ago to the systematic manipulation of information on then relatively new and quickly growing social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. So, given his training in computer science, machine learning, and statistics, he was particularly well prepared for researching the use of automated tools to spread disinformation. So I became fascinated with this idea that malicious actors, an adversary if you like, could try to manipulate these large-scale social media platforms to distort public opinion in one way or another. And uh, this is rooted in really a fundamental problem in computing, which is called, uh, you know, the Turing test or the imitation game that has been formulated by Alan Turing in the 1950s. Uh, Many of your listeners probably know about this. And the game is, is very simple. As a judge, you have to determine whether you're interacting with another human fellow or with a machine, with an artificial intelligence, if you like. So that's the original Turing test. And it has been always sort of like a trending idea. Now we have chatbots like Alexa, Siri, and so on. So it's obvious when you're, you know, communicating with them and we are interacting with them because they are well-behaved and they try to help you. But what happens if instead uh, someone equally capable or maybe 
uh, not necessarily that clever, could deploy some techniques or technologies that are similar in, in essence, artificial accounts. But uh, instead of operating inside your living room, they operate, you know, in the, on the World Wide Web or on social platforms. And unfortunately, there was plenty of anecdotal evidence uh, already 10 years ago, honestly, that uh, this kind of so-called bots, that is a shorthand for, for robot, could have been used to some extent to manipulate social media discussion. So we embarked upon this uh, decade-long research endeavor to create ourselves machine learning tools uh, that would allow for the detection of these malicious operations. Many aspects of social media manipulation can be and are being researched to better understand how social media platforms can interfere with genuine political discourse. Given their expertise on automated bots, Emilio and his colleagues concentrated on two specific dimensions of social media manipulation on Twitter, as he describes next. In this paper, we ultimately set to address two different dimensions of social media manipulation, which are namely the adoption of automation tools to understand the saliency and the prevalence of adoption of bots to discuss political related topics in the context of the election. And the second dimension is the distortion of uh, narratives online. So the injection of conspiracy theories, the propagation of unverified rumors, and how all these things blend into the broader landscape of uh, social media conversation going beyond politics. The paper itself highlights how, despite being outnumbered by several orders of magnitude by human users, just a couple of thousands of bots can actually generate spikes of conversation surrounding real-world events that are actually comparable in all with the volume of activity of humans in those particular time periods. And this is problematic because, of course, their activity somewhat revolves around salient political events, uh, things like the RNC or the DNC, or the nominations of now vice president, then vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris. So they can distort how the stories are presented uh, in the context of these particular issues. But there is a more subtle and maybe even more concerning type of issue that we highlighted in this paper, which is that there seems to be coordinated efforts by groups that we call conspiracy theory groups that in essence try to share and spread political misinformation and try to push hyper-partisan media outlets that uh, at times present uh, extreme ideologies, things that uh, very quickly approach problematic viewpoints uh, that are uh, aligned with maybe white supremacy ideologies and so on. And these conspiracy groups turn out to rely very heavily on automation and the adoption of bot accounts to spread and amplify these narratives uh, and distort the political discussion uh, to propagate this kind of disinformation and this kind of extreme ideologies. Having flourished in the 1820s and 30s as tools for America's emerging political parties, conspiracy theories aren't new to the national political discourse. And in episode 81 of Parsing Science, Tim Tangerlini talked with us about how conspiracy theorists interpret and use what they believe is hidden knowledge to connect multiple human interactions that are unrelated in reality. 
So Doug and I were interested in just how Emilio and his colleagues went about defining and identifying conspiracies in their study. With some help from the work that colleagues have done in the recent couple of years, ultimately we settled on identifying distorted signals uncorrelated with the truth. Of course, conspiracy theories are most likely false. And, you know, at times, very rarely, they could be true or there could be some you know, element of truth, right? So this is a different problem from, you know, the detection, let's say, of fake news, right? Because in fake news, you say this is true, this is false. In conspiracy theories, you don't really want to even try to do that. But what you try to do is understanding whether these things are postulated on either rumors, unverifiable information, or in general, in some extreme ideology that would require a certain type of mindset to sort of believe it. The bottom line here is that at the end of the day, what we want to try to identify is efforts to deliberately uh, deceive or manipulate uh, others, others who are unsuspecting individuals, who would genuinely believe in such claims. Uh, looking into the stuff, into the material, into the data that we had manually, because that's the only way you can find these kind of things, obviously, spending days and nights uh, sifting through the content, what we found was a very large variety of narratives that would qualify as conspiracy theories. And oftentimes, these conspiracy theories also had a political motive. Of course, this means that they are ideologically driven. This is different from, you know, whether we landed on the moon or, you know, whether whether Elvis uh, is still alive. Those are conspiracy theories, but they are not politically driven. The type of things that we looked at instead are politically driven. And all of these were intertwined, again, with political election data. So there is a lot, and you have to narrow down on, on certain key targets for, for investigation. So we narrowed down at the end targeting three families of conspiracy groups. We'll hear what those three groups were after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to parsing science. Here again is Emilio Ferrara. The first target of analysis was QAnon. The group's theory suggests that President Trump has been battling against a Satan-worshipping global child sex trafficking ring. And an anonymous source called Q is cryptically providing secret information about the ring. So this is the textbook definition of QAnon. Now, this group typically uses hashtags such as hashtag QAnon, and other hashtags that are much more problematic, for example, hashtag the Great Awakening. This is also a white supremacist hashtag that suggests that uh, white people will all come together and kind of cleanse the world from any other non-white people and a bunch of other horrible things. So we have plenty of examples in the paper that illustrate how these tweets have been used in the context of the election. The second group of conspiracy theories pertains to the so-called, quote-unquote, gate conspiracies. So the gate conspiracies, such as Obamagate, Pizzagate, and many others, have been associated with uh, theories 
that are, of course, based on unvalidated claims. None of them are rooted in any sort of reality or any sort of uh, evidence, including things such as the Barack Obama's officials allegedly conspired to entrap Trump. Pizzagate, another interesting conspiracy here that suggested that uh, there was a connection between several high-ranking Democratic Party officials and a chain of U.S. restaurants that allegedly run human trafficking businesses in their basements. The third and maybe more interesting conspiracy group is the COVID-related conspiracy groups. The COVID-related conspiracy groups typically conspire about the representation of the salience, importance, and scale of the pandemic. They conspire about their origin, speculating that this has been uh, deliberately created and injected by the Chinese government. They conspire about means of prevention, effective prevention techniques, doubting that public health prevention policies, such as social distancing or the adoption of masks in public, etc., doubting that they are effective. They also doubt about diagnosis, and they also doubt, of course, about the treatment of this disease. They argue that certain unverified treatments such as hydroxychloroquine and others uh, that have no medical evidence for being effective in the treatment of COVID. They also debate about upcoming vaccines, safety and effectiveness, etc., etc. All of this without any fundamental evidence uh, rooted in scientific and medical research. These are the three groups that we studied and in the run-up to the election. All of these groups have been dramatically more active during the last couple of months than before. Emilio's investigations into social media bots came about through a project he became involved with when he moved from London to the United States for a postdoc at Indiana University. It resulted in his development of a system to determine the likelihood that a Twitter account is actually run by a bot. And we've linked to his botometer at parsingscience.org e91 so you can check out your own account's bot score. Up next, Emilio explains how this program has evolved since its debut in 2014, as well as how the technology was used in the current study. Things evolve all the time, constantly. Our strategies to determine what could be an automated account and what could not be an automated account also have changed. So over the last couple of years, maybe two years, three years, uh, we have taken a different approach. Now we actually rank all the accounts according to their bot score. And then we look at the top and at the bottom of this ranking. So we only look at a small fraction, for example, the top 10% of accounts by bot score, the accounts that end up having a very high bot score, closer to one, let's say. And then we look uh, conversely to the bottom of this ranking, the bottom 10% of these accounts by bot score. And uh, we call these two buckets, these two subgroups as uh, respectively Accounts that are likely to be automated, the top 10%, and accounts that are likely to be human users, the bottom 10%. And then we sample these groups. Each group, of course, contains a lot of users, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions. We take you know, thousands of users from each group, so we give it to human judges. We only ask them to determine whether you know, they think they're accounts that are human users or, or bots. So we are able, in essence, to understand in a sort of a double-blind review process whether these accounts are human or bots, according to human judges. And we kind of cross-match these numbers. And that's how, you know, how we tune our machine learning models for the detection of these particular automation signatures. 
And uh, once we have these annotations, of course, we can study the activity of these suspicious accounts, not only at the macroscopic level, you know, looking at the volume of activity that they produce when they're active, but also what they talk about, what kind of users they interact with, what kind of users interact with them. But the most important thing, if you like, is what kind of stories, what kind of narratives, what kind of uh, maybe ideology these users are pushing. And at this point, uh, I think it's worth making an important clarification and underscore the fact that if an account is operated automatically uh, by means of algorithms, automation and whatnot, that's not necessarily per se something problematic, right? In fact, there are plenty of bots that are used on social media platforms for very legitimate purposes. In episode 20 of Parsing Science, Sarush Vasugi explained how false news disseminates further, faster, and farther than true news on Twitter. And by monitoring the site leading up to and following the 2016 presidential election, Emilio and his colleagues identified many concerning patterns in how malicious Twitter bots were used to manipulate voters. Ryan and I were interested in hearing more about how the use of bots for political mis- and disinformation has changed since then. So we found hundreds of accounts that were used in 2016, in November 2016, to support Trump that then got kind of hibernated and then got resuscitated in uh, late April, beginning of May 2017. And they switched language. They started speaking French now and they started, you know, favoring the far right candidate in the context of the 2017 French presidential election. So we never stopped looking at these events. After France, of course, we got back to our domestic politics and looked into the integrity of the 2018 election. And since then, we basically collected a never-ending stream, social media data regarding U.S. politics. So now we have, you know, billions and billions of tweets spanning a couple of years that qualify sort of genuine political discourse and also millions and millions of data points uh, of examples of verified misinformation or disinformation operations and disinformation campaigns, not only from Russia, but now from several foreign countries. This also in part thanks to the collaboration with Twitter that releases systematically ground truth data, meaning data with examples of uh, operations or tweets associated with operations from, from different countries. And so we wanted to try to publish a peer review paper that somewhat summarizes the evidence that we identified in the months of work prior to the 2020 US presidential election and uh, summarizing and highlighting issues with social media manipulation that we uncovered. Between 2016 and 2020, of course, a lot of stuff happened. Platforms became better at uh, detecting and promptly suspending accounts that are obviously uh, automated, accounts that are obviously part of certain campaigns, uh, foreign sponsor campaigns, and so on. So uh, the landscape of manipulation is different. And this is important because we are playing this cat and mouse game where the malicious actors that we deal with and the tools that they use keeps constantly changing and evolving and becoming harder to detect. And so our methods and our models and our techniques have to adjust, have to catch up and continuously improve to be able to face these new challenges. Automated bots can be used by individual, institutional, and governmental actors to manipulate information in many ways. For example, they can amplify the spread of conspiracies within a network of users, or they can retweet stories broadcast by other media outlets. Emilio describes how a Twitter account's bot score and use of hashtags related to QAnon 
predict the political leaning of the news sources tweeted by those accounts. So we also try to characterize how conspiracy users behave with respect to the news media that they have consumed and the news media that they have rebroadcast to others. And this brings me to figure 12, which is tied up for my favorite finding in the paper. And this figure conveys a lot of different information. So I'm going to unpack it for our listeners. So here on the x-axis, you have the dimension of QAnon user proportion. And on the y-axis, you have the average bottometer score for the accounts in that particular bucket. And the dots here illustrate different news media accounts, okay? So you can see a variety of different accounts. There are 29 such accounts, I believe, that we tracked. These accounts are all over the political spectrum. So there are many left-leaning news outlets, such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and so on and so forth. There are many neutral news media outlets, things like, uh, you know, uh, Thomson Reuters, the BBC, and, and so on. And then there are others that are more uh, right-leaning, uh, legitimate news media like Fox News, uh, maybe the Daily Mail and Chicago Tribune and the Wall Street Journal and so on. And then we also have some that we consider hyper-partisan new websites according to uh, definition of uh, third-party uh, services like uh, allsides.com that provide this non-partisan classification of media outlets. T- news media uh, accounts like Infowars, Breitbart, OAN, which stands for One American News Network, and, uh, and a few other partisan outlets. And looking at the, uh, at the picture, the dots all sit onto this uh, nice red dashed line which shows a very strong correlation between the proportion of accounts that retweeted these news media outlets and also the average bot score of these accounts. So if you look at the bottom left, you will find accounts like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, and so on. Accounts that are obviously associated with uh, left-leaning news media. So the consumers, the users who engage Uh, are much less likely to be bots on average, and they're also much less likely to be engaged with this QAnon content. It's not zero, obviously, but it's, it's, it's very low. It's significantly lower. As you move across the political spectrum from left to right, you will notice that some of the users that engage with more neutral platforms, you know, Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and so on, they quickly become, on average, more bot-like, and they also very quickly become more likely to be consumer of QAnon. And then if you look at the top Uh, right corner of this picture, that's where the more problematic news outlets uh, sit. OAN, Infowars, Breitbart. These news outlets have almost 60, sometimes nearly 70% of their users who are also engaged with QAnon conspiracies, okay? And as a matter of fact, more than a quarter over, you know, 0.25 average bot score, which means that uh, in expectation one in four of the accounts retweeting these news outlets is a bot. So this uh, is really unpacking the interplay and the correlation, if you like, between conspiracy support, automation, and political leaning of news media outlets. And I think this really epitomizes the results in this study that connect the dots between adoption of automation tools 
and why that can be a problem if it's used in the context of the spread of conspiracy theories or the amplification of problematic and uh, partisan news outlets. Emilio completed this study months before the violent insurrection that pro-Trump extremists, deceived by the president's false claims about the legitimacy of the 2020 election, carried out in the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And we spoke with him when the public's awareness of Parler, a presently deplatformed Twitter-like site with a far-right user base, was just emerging. So Ryan and I were curious what Emilio thought about the potential pros and cons of relying on publicly available Twitter data for the characterization of social media manipulation in the 2020 presidential election. There are all sorts of biases when we deal with Twitter, but we deal with the same biases with any platform, right? So people are concerned about, you know, representation bias or self-selection bias and so on, right? It is true. Of course, people self-select themselves to be users of Twitter or not, to be users of Facebook or not, to be users of new platforms like Gab or Parler or not, right? And that self-selection process is the same and affects any platform. So there is the same self-selection process occurs when we study media traditionally, right? You uh, and I will have different media diets. We will read different uh, news outlets and uh, we will self-select ourselves based on prior beliefs and norms and preferences to be readers of the New York Times or Fox News and to be consumers of, um, you know, cable TV watching uh, CNN or, or Fox News and whatnot, right? So the problem of bias exists in and of itself for any study, right? So we should be clever enough to acknowledge that whatever system we study, there are going to be self-selection issues. With uh, social media platforms, there are, of course, other issues that are related also to the salience of the data that we can collect, right? So we want to understand if this data is representative of an under, underlying population. And I would argue that when we look at platforms that are large enough with a large user basis like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, TikTok, and so on, we are talking about hundreds of millions of users, you know, probably well over 100 million users on all of these platforms. Then I'm less concerned about uh, distortions in terms of representativeness of samples and in terms of uh, self-selection. So this is my take. And at the end of the day, there is going to be no perfect solution. So all the answers that we can attain from a scientific standpoint will uh, require, you know, many different people, groups and researchers with different multidisciplinary mindsets and skill sets to tackle different problems and study them in different platforms. Uh, and, you know, ultimately we will be able to uh, get a better sense of these macroscopic dynamics across the entire information ecosystem. Due to his fluency in collecting and analyzing very large data sets, Emilio regularly consults on a variety of interdisciplinary research projects, including those in medicine and public health. So to conclude our conversation, Doug and I wanted to learn what lessons he's gleaned from working across multiple diverse disciplines. I think the most important difference that we always underscore is that Whereas in clinical research, especially, you always work with this idealized world where you run a clinical trial and you have a randomized control trial set up where you have a control group uh, that takes a placebo and a treatment group. So you have this very, very clean idealized world where you can control a lot of these confounders because you know a lot about your patients, you know a lot about, about the population at hand. Now, that is a beautiful 
wonderful world, and it's an idealized world. It's not how the vast majority of research in, for example, our discipline happens, right? So a lot of the work that we do uh, is uh, observational in, in, in nature, right? We're also unable to tell and we're also unable to know a lot of other things that you would otherwise know in a randomized controlled trial or in a clinical study, right? We don't know who these people are. Sometimes we don't even know that they are real people. They might be bots, right? And that's one of the most important aspects of these types of studies. The second aspect is that we don't know if they're lying. We don't know if they're speaking the truth, right? We only know what they say, and we will not know whether people on social media platforms speak their mind and and really tell the truth about what they think and what they believe. So there are a lot of things that occur behind the scenes that we have no access to. And we have to make the best of the data that we have by always being mindful and acknowledging the limitations of the studies and really how much we can draw in terms of conclusions and reliability. So we do make a large use, of course, of rigorous statistical analysis. And the strength here is really the sheer size and scale of the data that we look at. Uh, Even a large clinical study uh, might enroll uh, hundreds or maybe a few thousand people. But here, bear in mind, we always look at tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of users and their activity on the platform across uh, months or, or even years of activity, right? So we can track how trends evolve. We can track how things change over time. We can track how these aggregate behaviors of users and their interests and uh, norms and beliefs and so on as expressed through social media data change over time. That was Emilio Ferrara discussing his article, Characterizing Social Media Manipulation in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election, published on November 2, 2020, in the University of Illinois at Chicago's Open Access Journal, First Monday. You'll find a link to the paper at parsingscience.org e91, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. Do you have compelling stories you want to share about your own science? If so, make a Parsing Science-style podcast about your research through our new project, Science Pods. Just record a few stories about your work, and within a couple of minutes, you'll have a custom-made digital audio file, along with the tools for sharing it with the world. Get started today at sciencepods.com. Next time, in episode 92 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Angela Zora Medina from the University of Chicago about her research into how transitioning to a U.S.-style adversarial model of criminal procedure, one controlled by the prosecutor and defense rather than by the judge in court, decreased the number of inmates detained before their court trials in Latin America by 20%. The amazing part is that under these new models that restrain more the power of the state is that we have higher levels of prisoners than what we have over the 1980s or 1970s when dictatorships were on the rise. We hope that you'll join us again.